Welcome to Midas Touch Legal AF. If it is Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it is Sunday, it is Legal AF. If it is the weekend, Ben Mycel is joined by my co-host, Michael Popak. We are breaking down the week's legal issues at our pseudo-legal university disclaimer. We're not actually an educational university, but I think we are delivering the facts hard, true, real. You got a gavel, Popak, and for those listening and not watching, Popak's got a two-mic set up two popak microphones i like it popak how are you doing this weekend i'm doing i'm doing really great this is this is part of my hanukkah present from your brother brett i have a new recorder that we're going to use and hopefully people will appreciate on the on the audio pod drop uh midnight tonight and this other one is for you and i to talk so plus i look really cool with two microphones Popak, it's like you're giving a massive legal AF press conference. Let's get right into this week's legal news. Oh, I should make one one comment before I go into this week's legal news. So a bunch of people posting themselves wearing the legal AF T-shirts. I saw one legal AF listener studying. I zoomed in. I wanted to see the topic and see if it was law. It was administrative law that they were studying while wearing the legal AF shirt and a number of people posting it, which uh, always brings me a ton of joy to see how engaged our audience is um, when they learn these you know, facts, they learn about the cases, they apply the law. And look, we try to tell people and teach people about the law in ways, frankly, that when I went to law school, I wish professors kind of broke down the issues and, and connected it to today's current events. We, we always had, and I'm sure you did too, we always had a couple of professors uh, that were really popular that were able to break it down. And I think you and I, and you probably had it at Georgetown too, I had it at Duke. And, and I, I bring with me, I stand on the shoulders of those educators when you and I approach this. I've never taught law school before, but you know we definitely put in as much effort into every class, every episode, to uh, bring the 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 uh, bring it down to the essence, the molecular structure of the case that involves a political overtone to it, constitutional overtone to it, so our people walk away hopefully more educated, more interested than they were before they started the podcast. Absolutely, Chief Justice Roberts rejects a request, an emergency request to block the TSA's air travel mask mandate. This occurred on Thursday. Roberts dismissed an emergency request. We've talked through on Legal AF the emergency request process. It's different than the granting of cert, you know, which then has a full briefing. It's set for all argument. We've talked on Midas Touch Legal AF You know, most of the cases that we're hearing about now and we'll talk about, you know, later, for example, um, the Dobbs, Mississippi case, for example, where there was the oral argument, that case was a case that was heard through cert, not through um, an emergency appeal. But then, you know, what we're going to talk about as well, you know, is, you know, the SB8 case, which originally there was an emergency appeal, you know, and then there was a a more uh, expedited full briefing on the SB8 law and the federal government's 
um, uh, lawsuit against uh, Texas. And we're going to talk about the status of that at the end of the podcast, because there was a ruling here. But Mike Scakelli, he's a Florida resident. Um, what he was alleging that his four year old son, who was autistic, and he himself, Michael Scalcelli, said he's someone who just can't tolerate wearing masks. It gives him emotional distress when he wears masks. And he was saying, basically, I think he was stuck in Florida and he couldn't make it to Washington, D.C. or North Carolina, where he was going to meet with families. Unclear why he can't drive or take any form of other transportation and thinks that the airlines is the only form of transportation. But he filed, I mean, this brief that was filed, you know, with look, it's groups that have an anti Biden agenda. It was a 90 page brief that they filed. These are the same groups that are working with GQP Republican attorney generals across the country to try to overturn the vax mandates. And as we talked about on the past podcast, the GQP has been successful when it comes to the vaccine mandates um, and the testing mandates. Um, but, you know, over here with mask mandates, at least with respect to this emergency request, it was rejected as not being an emergency, basically. So, so, just yeah, all, all true. Let me let me try to break it down a little bit, a little bit more. One shout out. I know he didn't write it himself, but this uh, this person who filed on behalf of himself and his autistic child alleges that he did it pro se, which means he did it without a lawyer. I don't know what his background is, but he's either an amazing fast study um, because he did structure the brief really well. I was sort of impressed by the structure and the writing in the brief, but I got to believe it was ghostwritten by one of these Trump lawyers. Um, yeah, it, it's a pro se uh, appeal, which went first started the 11th Circuit, which covers Florida, got transferred by the 11th Circuit itself to the D.C. Circuit. And then he tried a direct appeal to the D.C. Circuit. There really wasn't a proceeding below. This is almost one of those fast track through appeals where you skip the trial level. And then once he didn't like the ruling at the D.C. Circuit, that would give him relief. And I think he he gave the D.C. Circuit two days or three days because he had to get on that flight, which was sort of ridiculous. It then went to, and we're going to talk about this uh, in another segment later today about another ruling coming out of the D.C. Circuit. Again, a, a reminder lesson, each circuit has assigned to it a Supreme Court justice or chief justice who is responsible for that circuit for emergency applications and to decide at the threshold, at the gatekeeping level, whether that appeal is going to move forward on an emergency basis or not, or it's just gonna have to be brought up through what you referred to earlier as the writ of certiorari process, which requires a vote of at least four justices to decide to take a full-blown appeal. This is an emergency appeal and you get you get what you pay for when you're applying for an emergency application. You get the duty judge, the judge, the justice that's assigned to your circuit to decide the issue at the outset. Justice Roberts is Chief Justice Roberts is the assigned justice for the D.C. circuit, which makes sense. It's the circuit that sits in D.C., and he, on his own, without consultation of any justice, has the power on an emergency application to reject the application and say, no, you're not going to go through an emergency application. If you have any relief, you need to do it 
through the trial level, through full briefing at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And then maybe we'll see you at the Supreme Court if, pardon me, if we get if there's four votes to do it. And, and basically what what uh, uh, Roberts is saying here is that there is no substantial issue of law that he finds so overwhelming that he has to fast track the appeal and then he sent it back. So. Um, again, I think this is more about a segment giving a lesson about circuit court, circuit courts, appellate courts, and the justices that sit over them, which we're going to pick up as a thread throughout this uh, podcast. People want to know about Trump's SPAC and the SEC investigation and the FINRA investigation, two investigations underway. We've talked about the digital world acquisition company. That's the SPAC. Then you have that merging into the Trump media uh, group. And when this SPAC was initially announced, um, Popak and I pointed out all the idiosyncratic natures is a nice way of putting it about the SPAC that made it highly unusual. I mean, number one, the fact that the SPAC Digital World Acquisition Company was buying the Trump Media Group, which just had zero financial records whatsoever. I mean, normally you're merging into an actual company that has financials, that does audits, that is real, that exists, that has users. I mean, one of the things with this with this Trump media company, the first goal it's set by November to start beta beta testing um, its uh, product, you know, you know, failed. They used open source coding where they were required to credit the uh, creator of the open source uh, code. And what the Trump media group also did was they claimed it was their own code and they claimed it was proprietary code, which to me would also be a material misrepresentation. And they missed another deadline. They missed, they said they had a $1 billion worth of secret investors or investors, institutional investors that they were going to announce last week, along with the launch of the, of the site. And that didn't happen either. At best, Ben, what the SPAC was merging into was the ego of Donald Trump with nothing. It was like they were acquiring Donald Trump with nothing else behind it in terms of metrics that any other investor would use to make any other investment. So there are really two issues that are being investigated separately on the FINRA front. Front and FINRA stands for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, POPAC. They're looking into the unusual trading, which seems to have the pattern of insider trading immediately before the announcement of this merger. There were unusually high volumes of merger of, of trades from certain traders before it was announced. And the only way you would know that is if you received um, material non-public information, which is a big no-no to trade on that. And right, those individuals. Yeah, sorry, because Digital World Acquisition Group had no business at the moment that people were allegedly trading. You know, people talk about penny stocks. Oh, let's take a flyer on this and see what happens. The the it, when they graph at FINRA and the SEC the trading volume and they see tremendous trading volume before at what was supposed to be a secret announcement is finally announced to the public usually signals somebody is buying in anticipation with insider knowledge. And usually, you know, a SPAC that is successful, you know, first up, SPACs usually trade around $10. Not usually, I'm almost in all cases, $10 a share. And so 
the fact that that started trading. So all these insiders started buying before the announcement. And then the stock shot up at some at some points of times, you know, around $100 a share, more than $100 a share. 143. I mean, un- unbelievable. And so those people made massive, massive amounts of money. So FINRA is investigating that. And then the SEC, Popak, they're investigating the the timing of when uh, digital world acquisition company, the SPAC, this blank check company, this holding company, if you will, that would be merging into the private company, in this case, the Trump company, and taking it public, when they began having conversations, when they began communicating with each other about this merger, um, because the time from when the SPAC was created in September to the announcement in October is an incredibly short period of time. The purpose of these facts is to do due diligence over a number of months, and you are not allowed to have conversations with your target company about the merger prior to you announcing the formation of the SPAC. Once the SPAC starts trading publicly, then you're supposed to go out as the SPAC, do due diligence on a number of companies for investors to bring it public. So SEC is investigating that. And that was also based off some great reporting at the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, look, the SPAC can in its own mind think about what industries, segments, sectors, and even companies that it would like to have as a target if it ever raised enough money through the sale of these $10 units. But it can't disclose that to the investing public, and it can't disclose it to the uh, private placement public entity, the PIPE, P-I-P-E, investors who are coming in, because that's then you're just, the charade is over. You're just doing a public company without all of the required disclosures and protections of the public investor that are required. The biggest problem Trump has right now is twofold. One, he's got Elizabeth Warren, who is on him like white on rice, who wants to bring down that SPAC. And you've got Gary Gensler, who is Biden's head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, who is formerly at Goldman Sachs, who is known as the sheriff of Wall Street, who has decided that he's going to make, as he announced just this past week, he's going to make the regulation of SPACs and pipes, which is the what I just mentioned, the private placement public uh, uh, entity investor. He's going to make that the focus of his legacy at the SEC. He thinks they need to be regulated. He thinks they're there. It's the OK Corral now. Any, anything goes. And he's going to bring discipline, financial regulation to the market to protect the public investor, because who gets hurt? The investor that you talked about that invests in the SPAC and probably does it with insider knowledge and it gobbles up all these $10 units, knowing which which the public doesn't know, that they're going to try to buy this Trump entity and then waits for the stock to shoot from $10 to $143, then sells out, and now the stock is trading at 64. So everybody that lost money between 143 and 64, which is tremendous, and I'm sure there'll be class action lawsuits off of this, is the injured regular public. Trump does not care about the public, the small investor at all. And I think that's been obvious when 
you outlined all the things that have gone terribly wrong with the Trump media and technology group. They don't have a working website. They don't have a social media platform that's been announced. They haven't. Uh, they have not acquired a billion dollars of investment, which they said they would by last week. This is just the Trump stakes, Trump shirts, Trump whatever. All those other failed business ventures that 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 Trump has littered the highway with on his way to his own family's fortune. Period. Speaking of additional Trump litigation, I mean, you know, the the level of bogging down the legal system that the GQP does, the GQP is so entitled. They're so we see it in everything with their challenges of we talked about it earlier with mask mandates, but on the past Midas Touch Legal AF, the way they've attacked vaccine mandates and or testing, um, the way they um, attack the separation of church and state. You know, they're out there whining about how, uh, you know, we need tort reform and how Democrats are supporting trial lawyers. And at the end of the day, you have trial lawyers out there who are doing great work. I mean, not all trial lawyers are doing great work, but by and large, you have great trial lawyers who are the ones on the front lines against the big tobacco companies, you know, holding pharmaceutical companies accountable, fighting for consumers, right? And then on the other hand, you got Republicans and GQPers fighting basically so that Americans, ha- you know, have the right to, you know, to die, to, to kill Americans under these far notions of what they perceive their own freedoms to be over the health and security of people with their lawsuits challenging the vaccine mandate, which I just want to remind our listeners is not a vaccine mandate. It's only it was only a mandate with respect to health care workers. And the only punishment was basically, you know what, you don't get the government benefit of the Medicare and Medicaid payments if you don't follow this, which again, the Medicare Medicaid payments is something that Republicans and GQPers are against in the first place. But they're fighting to keep the government benefit that they don't want so that they have the right not to be vaccinated as healthcare workers. I just want to point out the absurdity of that. And then they're against testing in employment settings as well. So they're flooding the courts with this litigation and Trump's flooded the courts with litigation over January 6th. And we're going to talk about it after Mark Meadows is seeing that as well. And he, Mark Meadows is just the worst. Whoever, whoever's advising him, though, he's all over the place with his litigation strategy. There's probably a lot of people chirping in his ear because Strat- strategy is being too kind in what he's employing. <laughs> whatever, whatever Meadows is doing is, is, is wild, but it is We don't want people knowing about what we did on January 6th, and we are going to use every legal measure, every legal maneuver to stall and delay and try to not allow the January 6th committee to do his job in hopes. Sorry, go ahead. In hopes of a Republican taking over the House and dismantling the committee, Popak. So, so two quick observations, then we'll talk about the Jan 6 National Archive case, which just came down firmly against Trump uh, yesterday. Uh, first observation is what you and I are observing over the last now 37 episodes of Legal AF, which is, as I mentioned to somebody recently, our show is episodic. 
it has an arc and you follow all and you learn and one builds on the other. We're not just a standalone podcast where, you know, you can just tune in for this episode, but it's building on now 36 episodes and discussions and analysis that we've given. And one thing that we've made clear is the Republican strategy now is just reaping what they sowed 30 years ago or more with the Federalist Society and Mitch McConnell's plan to put as many Federalist judges on the bench as possible at every level of the federal court, from the trial court level to the Court of Appeals or the Appellate Division, the Appellate Circuit, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And he has done it methodically while the Democrats slept, while we complained and wrung our hands about our presidential candidate. Mitch McConnell was chopping wood every day for the last 30 years and stacking it up as federal judges. And what and when you have the home court advantage, or you think you do, then you're ready to go after a, a sitting president like Biden and try to um, pin him back, hamstring him, undermine him and his administration values at every turn by flooding, as you just talked about so eloquently, flooding the court system with cases that you think there is a receptive federal judge on the other side for. They never would have done this 30 years ago when the bench was more equal, equally divided between Democratic and Repu Democrats and Republicans. But now they have the home court advantage. There's an extra man on the court and it's them. And so they're like, screw it. You know, all those sort of things that you and I were like, they're never going to get abortion overturned in our lifetime as a constitutional right. They're never going to get religious schools paid for by taxpayer dollars. They're never going to undermine the establishment clause. Everything that was on the Republican wish list and the conservative or right wing wish list for the last 30 years is now we're watching it. This is what this is the assault on the courts with a friendly federal court judges there, Republican, and they're pushing their entire social agenda now. We're just watching it. Our mouths dropped open, but that's what's happening. And so fortunately, there are some judges like the three judges on the D.C. Circuit Appellate Court. Um, who upheld Judge Chutkin's decision that Biden, combined with the Congress, with the Jan, in the, the form of the Jan 6 committee, has the power and the right to waive uh, executive privilege and to have all of the relevant, not everything that Trump did, but all of the relevant documents and information turned over to the National Archive related to the Jan 6th insurrection rally and planning pre and post and the uh, election overturning activity of Trump or election fraud claims of Trump is fair game and proper for the for the special committee to review. So you have Chutkin at the trial level who said, you have not made your case under the Presidential Powers Act or the Presidential Records Act, Mr. Trump at all. I don't see an affidavit from you. You haven't told me which documents are or are not and why they aren't. Um, uh, or, or shouldn't be uh, disclosed at all. You haven't met your burden. That got taken up on appeal with a three-judge panel at the D.C. Court of Appeals. And I want our listeners and followers to keep an eye on one particular judge on that panel, uh, Kentenji Brown-Jackson, because I think if Biden gets a pick, she may well be the next Supreme Court justice, and she'd be the first Black woman to ever be on the U.S. Supreme Court, and she's part of that panel. The issue was for the three judge panel, which they did on an expedited but complete briefing and oral argument, whether Trump had met his burden 
a substantial burden to overcome the Presidential Records Act and the presumption that the sitting president, Joe Biden, his calculus as to which documents should and should not be given to the Jan 6 committee should overcome a former president in, in that analysis. So first they said, listen, we're not going to even touch whether we whether a former president can ever overcome the uh, presumption that the sitting president's decision-making is correct. Because you, Mr. Trump, have not done your duty to meet your burden to prove at all that you have a right, that you have um, documents that need executive privilege, why they need executive privilege, as the Jan 6 committee looks at why there was an attack on the legislative branch trying to facilitate the orderly transition of government, which is fundamental to our constitution. And one last thing, Ben, I mean, th this, this was breathtaking in its analysis, the 68 pages. It was written by Judge Millett, Patricia Millett, an Obama appointee, as part of the panel. And in it, she said a quote that I've repeated on Twitter, which is a quote from Ben Franklin, who after the Con Constitutional Congress was asked by an onlooker or a friend of his, do we have a monarchy or do we have a republic, Dr. Franklin, to which he responded, a republic, if you can keep it, meaning the burden is on us as citizens as participants in democracy to, to preserve the republic. And these judges believe that Jan 6 was such an existential crisis, such an attack on our democracy and our republic, that Trump's gonna have to do a lot better than saying, oh, I was the former president. I get, to, I get to have unilateral control over my documents. Not happening. Now, one last thing, just so we can keep track for updates. The panel, the three judge panel did stay the order for two more weeks. So, the nat so people might be saying, oh, turn them over right now, get those National Archive documents over to Benny Thompson at the Jan 6 committee. That's not gonna happen. There's a two week stay starting Friday to give Trump time to take an emergency application to Judge Just Chief Justice Roberts to decide whether he's gonna get a an emergency injunction in place. So it's up to Roberts to decide at the outset whether there's going to be a fast track appeal here or not. And we're going to have to wait and see whether he decides, no, I'm going to reject it as the sitting duty judge for this circuit, or he opens it up and looks for four votes to take it up on a fast track appeal like the SB8 abortion case. We'll have to sit and wait and you and I will follow and report. Two things I want to read from Judge Patricia Millett's uh, ruling writing for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, quote, the executive privilege for presidential communications is a qualified one that Mr. Trump agrees must give way when necessary to protecting overriding interests. The president and the legislative branch have shown a national interest in and pressing need for the prompt disclosure of these documents, these documents being that tranche of National Archive documents surrounding January 6th. The court goes on to say, quote, the events of January 6th expose the fragility 
of those democratic institutions and traditions that we had perhaps come to take for granted. In response, the president of the United States, referring to Biden, and Congress have each made the judgment that access to this subset of presidential communication records is necessary to address a matter of great constitutional moment for the republic. And uh, she's saying this for a number of reasons. You know, one, as a historical marker, she knows this opinion is going to be read as part of the historical library of our democracy, and that this decision is an important one for the protection of our democracy, and that that's what's at stake. She's also writing it knowing that there is going to be this 14-day hold on the ruling and that it is going to be reviewed by the Supreme Court. And she's also saying, you overturn this. One of the things you're doing is you are uh, not rising to the occasion in this great constitutional moment for the republic, and you may be responsible for the destruction of our republic, Supreme Court. And it's a yeah. challenge to them to do the right thing as well. And I, I, I want to put it in perspective before we leave it. If we were talking about John Adams agreeing to turn over the papers of George Washington or Jefferson agreeing to turn over the papers of Adams to get to the bottom of an insurrection that had attacked the Capitol, uh, those statesmen would have stood aside I believe, and allowed those papers to be easily transferred over to whatever congressional committee was empowered at that time. But we're not. But because it's Trump against Biden, who he thinks is the Antichrist, you know, you have and and even and even Judge Millett mentioned it in her in her ruling. She said a lot of presidents just step aside in this type of investigation and don't even try to make the court determine the balance between which tips substantially in the favor of the sitting president. Let, let, let's leave our listeners and followers with no doubt that cap, that thumb is on the scale automatically under the presidential records act and constitutional analysis in favor of Joe Biden. And Trump would have to have overcome all of that. And then, and then the, and then the last thing is, you know, it's clear that, that I don't even think Trump thinks he was going to win this one because they uh, once again, he didn't submit an affidavit or a declaration on his own behalf at all. So the court had no problem in saying that Trump had not made an insufficient showing or there wasn't enough. This is the quote from Millet. There was no basis provided by Trump to prevent the National Archive turning over this material to, to Congress. None at all. And, and we've seen this before with, with they, you know, even like Rudy Giuliani got disbarred because he didn't file an affidavit that properly supported any of his claims. Trump, Trump's lawyers, if you and I were handling the case for Trump, we'd be like, hey, Donald, we got to make an affidavit. We got to go document by document through all of the documents that you claim are privileged by executive privilege and tell the court why. In fact, the court in its order said, Trump, you got it backwards. It's it's not up to the court to go through a stack of documents and determine when or if the privilege should be applied. It's up to you to tell us what you think is privileged and you have not met, met your burden. I think Roberts either turns this down and even if it went to full briefing, I think even this Supreme Court would turn these documents over to the Jan 6 committee. That's my prediction. Popak, we will keep our legal AFers updated on the status of that. I want to turn to 
uh, oral argument in the case of Carson versus Macon, um, which appears to be um, another victory for really abolishing any separation between church and state, between taking away what the establishment clause says and and what it stands for. Um, the case in Carson versus Macon, where oral argument was, is basically whether the state of Maine is required to subsidize religious education. So what state of the state of Maine was allowing with this voucher program to subsidize a subset of like 5,000 students. Maine was like, we're okay, actually, uh, if you go to a school that has a religious affiliation, that's fine. Where we're concerned about and what we won't fund is if that school specifically teaches, though, religious indoctrination. If that school specifically gets into teaching things like um, you know, and, and in some cases, extreme religious radicalism was really what they were concerned about. They weren't really concerned about love thy neighbor. They were concerned about certain radical, you know, evangelical religious schools that were teaching people that homosexuals were the devil. That's what they were concerned about, the government funding things like that. Um, and what the Supreme Court appeared to be indicating in this oral argument is that they were saying, Maine, do not discriminate against those religious schools that say you can discriminate against homosexuality. That's who we're concerned about. We're concerned about you as a state discriminating against those schools. When I look back at the history of, of all of this, Popak, and I know you have strong feelings here, you look at a case like Everson versus Board of Education in 1947, where the country understood the separation between church and state. And in that case, it was no tax in any amount, large or small, can be levied to support any religious activities or institutions, whatever they may be called or whatever form they may adopt to teach or practice religion. They understood it. It's it's clear. There's a separation of church and state in it. It's great. If you want to practice religion, go for it. Like the, that's something that we're all supportive, but just not with government taxpayer dollars. That line of cases was effectively abandoned in the case Zelman versus Simmons Harris in 2002, in which a five to four uh, court there basically said that. It upheld this pilot program in Ohio that provided tuition vouchers for, for funding private education, including religious schools. Um, but here, the issue went a step further, it was not just the religious schools, which Maine was fine with funding. It was religious indoctrination and government funds going to that. Um, Popak, I know you had very strong feelings when you were watching or you were listening to this oral argument. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's back up a bit and talk a, a bit about the Establishment Clause, because everybody throws around the term um, separation of church and state. But like, where does it come from? And that's part of what we do on Legal AF. So the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, combined with Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, um, and the, the Establishment Clause reads, Congress shall make no law respecting 
the establishment of religion or promoting uh, or promoting the free exercise thereof. And how do we know it's separation of church and state? Because Thomas Jefferson, right, who is involved with one of the founding fathers and framers, uh, is on record, and it's been cited in prior uh, Supreme Court cases, as saying that this means that there is a separation of church and state. And, and there's a case from 1879, Reynolds versus U.S., in which Jefferson's comment is taken by the Supreme Court as the authoritarian declaration of the separation of church and state forevermore. That's where the phrase comes from. Now, there's been, as you started to uh, reel off, a dozen or more cases since the 1800s all the way through 2020 about religion in schools and taxpayer dollars. And so we like to think as laymen, as laymen when we talk about it, or as lawyers when we talk about it, that there is a hard and fast giant wall, impenetrable between uh, church and state. But it's almost like the wall a little bit in Game of Thrones. It is very protective, but one day it can come tumbling down. And what we're seeing is a chip away at that wall by not just this Supreme Court, because they're just carrying the ball forward from other cases. So you mentioned one, Zellman versus uh, Simon Harris in 2002 by a five to four decision, which upheld, um, and that one it upheld payments uh, uh, to provide vouchers related to religious education. In 2020, they even got even closer. And that's when, you know, uh, we had the, um, not all of the current justices on the Supreme Court, but many of them, Coney Barrett hadn't joined yet, but in Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, the Supreme Court ruled that a state could not exclude a religious school from tax credit because of its religion. Sort of that's the beginning of the end of what we always think of as an impenetrable separation of church and state, because that court found it was okay to use tax dollars or tax credit to support a religious institution. So the current supermajority right-wing Catholic uh, voters on the Supreme Court, now led by Amy Coney Barrett, Thomas Alito, Kavanaugh uh, and Gorsuch, have, based on the oral argument, seem to be taking this even a step further. So in Maine, it's sort of unique. There's not a public school near uh, the parties to this case where they can send their kid to public school. So they have to send their kid to, to private school. And in this case, a religious school. And the question is, can they participate in that tax credit voucher system if their only choice is to send it to a religious school, even if the religious school is inculcating the values of that religion it's teaching kids to be Catholic or whatever, you know, Christian sect or Jewish, I guess, if there's one in Maine. But the problem that this current supermajority on the Supreme Court has is that the Maine law says uh, we will give you this voucher money, but we won't if part of what you are doing is, is inculcating religious doctrine in your school day to your children, to the, to the students. And, you know, that's the part that gave the six to three majority heartburn during the oral argument, which is sort of like, who are you, Mr. 
bureaucrat at the school board or the, or the state. Who are you to decide whether there's too much religion or not enough religion? You know, we don't like that. You're supposed to be sort of neutral in this. This is the new thing the Supreme Court supermajority is doing. They're saying, oh, the, 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 the uh, Constitution is neither pro-abortion or anti-abortion. It's neither, it shouldn't be pro-religion, but it shouldn't be anti-religion. Ignoring all the precedent about the separation of church and state when it comes to religious funding for, for religious schools. But this is, this is the federalist society approach to every problem. We're just seeing it writ large during oral argument. So my gut is they're just gonna take the ball from Espinosa v. Montana Department of Revenue in 2020. And now they're gonna say in Maine, if you have a, a situation where there's no choice but to send a kid to a religious school, no bureaucrat can tell you how much religion or not enough religion is in that program before we're gonna allow taxpayer reimbursement. And, and that's just gonna be the law based on the oral argument. I'd be shocked if there's any changes when it goes into conference. Really what they're doing is this is not the landmark case um, the way Dobbs is in potentially abolishing Roe v. Wade. This is kind of the setup, right? This is the, we are going to start kind of fundamentally creating these obligations of states that offer voucher programs to make sure that they're funding private educations outside of public schools in religious institutions and making religious institutions beneficiaries, tax exempt religious institutions, beneficiaries of tax dollars. Whereas in Maine, the issue was a little bit narrow and unusual, given it was this small subset of people who couldn't be educated anywhere else other than a religious school. But the broader, more fundamental movement where I think you see in 2022, 2023, 2024, especially as long as the 6-3 remains, you know, you know, no pun intended on saying Maine, but as, as, as it remains, is this push towards tax dollars funding private religious education um, and making private religious schools basically um, you know, as big of beneficiaries, in some cases, bigger than public schools. Yeah, That's where the, I think the, this ends. I agree with you. And, and the test they're going to use, but they're going to use it, they're going to distort it and corrupt it and use it to their benefit, is a test that's known as the Lemon Test, which came out of a case whose who's, uh, one of the parties was Lemon. I don't want people to think it's, it's something else, but it is referred to as the Lemon Test. And the way they analyze any law under the Establishment Clause is three prongs. One, they look to see whether the law was adopted for a neutral or non-religious purpose. Two, they, they look to see whether the effect of the law neither inhibits nor advances religion. So they're going to say, in this case, does the reimbursement advance religion? Or is it just is or is it just as they're going to say, sending a kid to school where he can't he, there's no public school nearby? And lastly, does the law represent a an excessive entanglement, an excessive entanglement of government in religion? And you know what they're going to say? They're going to say 
It's not an excessive entanglement. These schools will operate with or without this tuition remission program or voucher program. And we don't see the fact what the, that their curriculum includes teaching about Catholicism or teaching that transgenders are bad, transgender people are bad or homosexuals are against the Bible or God's will. We don't think that's an excessive entanglement because those schools are going to exist with or without this taxpayer dollar. You see where this is coming. But that is the lemon test that they're going to bake into their ruling off this oral argument. No doubt about that. Tell us about our sponsor, Aura Frames, which is, Popak, your favorite holiday gift. That uh, Aura Frames is like the perfect Popakian gift. Um, you know, Popak loves, and for those watching, you know, it, it, it's, it's digital photography that you can display through a frame in your living room or wherever you want to post photos, but it's done so immaculately. Like I saw these products we talked about at Popak before, um, like a few years back, they had these like digital picture frames. And even Terrible. recently they were, they, they just weren't good. Like I would, I bought one of them and it was crappy photos, but like, this is really good. I have mine, you know, in, in, in the kitchen with, with photographs, but Popak, the day you got yours, you started loading the photos like day one. And like all you do is talk about it. So tell our listeners why they need to buy Aura Frames for this holiday season. I mean, I have a lot of toys in my life, but like this wasn't one of them, a, a digital frame. And I did. I had friends that got one. I remember when a friend of mine got one, not Aura, a, a, a dinosaur version of Aura, you know, like 15 years ago. And his wife loaded all the kids photos in it. And I thought it was sort of interesting. He told me he was really cumbersome to use and he probably was never going to load another photo in it again after he got the original uh, set from his wife. And so I don't think that's where we're going. But, you know, you have all of these these pictures. I'm sure everyone in our audience has thousands of photos in the cloud or on their phones. And, you know, yeah, you occasionally look at them. You think they're interesting or you put them up on Instagram once or Facebook once and you never look at them again. But, you know, I like the days of the, you know, the old photo albums and big collections of photos inside of Ziploc bags that my mother used to give me. And, you know, we've lost that. And Aura Frames has now digitized all that in a really easy and efficient way, um, which makes you able to see all these photos that you were so intent on taking at the moment, right? You couldn't wait to get that perfect shot or that family, you know, get uncle whatever in the photo with you, get the dog's expression just right. And then, you know, you set it and forget it, never saw it again for years, unless, unless something came up or Facebook popped it up in one of its reminder pages. But now you just have it cycling all day long and it does bring a smile. I have it right by my phone. So like when I'm mindlessly on the phone on, on something, I can at least look at something that's interesting. And, and I check off in my mind, oh, I like that photo. Oh, I remember that experience. I was just at a holiday party here in New York. And from the holiday party, a couple of pictures that we liked, we shot right to the frame. Somebody sent me a photo of my mom and dad from 1964 that I had never seen. It was from a bar mitzvah of a cousin. And it was a beautiful photo of my parents and my dad has passed. And I love that photo and I cleaned it up and I shot it right to the frame. And then when I came into work today to do the podcast with you tonight, there it was on the frame. I really like, I really like this product a lot. So it was one of Oprah's favorite things for a third year in 2021. For me, more importantly, it was on Popak's favorite things. Get some great deals now. Go to 
AuraFrames.com, A-U-R-A frames.com. Listeners, use the code and, and watchers, use the code legal AF and take $30 off Aura's best selling digital picture frames. That's Aura, A-U-R-A frames.com. Use the code legal AF and take $30 off Aura's best selling digital picture frames. Popak, what in the world is Mark Meadows doing here? He's, I he's mean, lost the meadows for the trees. Just scary that somebody, one who's uh, shows just the worst judgment, someone who's like an idiot, um, being <laughs> the chief of staff to an idiot, but I guess likes a track likes. And it's no wonder that, you know, Trump allowed this idiot to be around him because Trump's a moron and they both probably complimented each, each other. I mean, so we talked about on the last Legal AF podcast that Mark Meadows, through his lawyer, appeared to be cooperating with the January 6th cooperations. Maybe not the best word, but what they were at least agreeing to do was to turn over certain records um, that did not involve the claim of executive privilege and to sit voluntarily, um, although under, uh, you know, threat of contempt. So not sure how voluntary that, you know, that, that would be, but they wanted to frame it as, hey, we're going to voluntarily talk to the January 6th committee and that they would assert objections about on the grounds of executive privilege, where executive privilege applied meaning communications directly with Trump in the White House that relate to all the things that executive privilege covers. But on areas where executive privilege is either waived, it doesn't exist, where executive privilege doctrine doesn't apply, um, uh, you'd have to answer those questions. And so an example of where executive privilege doctrine wouldn't apply when you're not talking to the executive. So when Meadows was communicating with other con congressional people, other whack jobs as part of the Stop the Steal insurrection movement, all those people, that's not executive privilege. And so Mark Meadows turned over records. He turned over, you know, apparently a PowerPoint presentation, a PowerPoint presentation, which basically showed the steps of, of how they were going to uh, engage in, in the Over, insurrection. Overthrow of a government in one easy PowerPoint deck. So they turned over those records already. He turned over text messages between Meadows and congressional aides talking about how they were trying to work with state legislatures to get alternative electors in there, to which Mark Meadows replied, quote, love it. Um, and that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, but he's now filed a lawsuit against the January 6th committee. Nancy Pelosi, basically seeking an injunction so that he doesn't have to testify on the grounds of executive privilege. Meanwhile, um, Benny Thompson, Liz Cheney, the January 6th committee is moving forward, you know, with uh, their recommendation for contempt um, that that vote will then go in front of the full house. But just what's what's he doing? Like, I, like, I think we say at the outset that this lawsuit, he's going are there any grounds for this lawsuit, Popak? Is this going to get dismissed? Is he just wants to delay? What's go What's going on? Yeah, Meadows is a, is has demonstrated that he is a sock puppet for Donald Trump, whose hand is firmly up uh, Meadows' colon. How do I know that? Because he's acting so irrationally 
in his interactions through his attorney with the Jan 6 committee and is basically almost, I mean, in certain ways, he's waived the privilege by producing 2,000 pages of documents, including the aforementioned PowerPoint, which lays out the stop the steal, how do we stop certification issues. And he wrote a book. Well, and he wrote a book. So he's done a lot of things that could be claimed to be waiver of the very privilege that he's trying to assert in the lawsuit. Another thing I wanna put on the radar of our listeners and followers today is the importance of the of the National Archive appeal case that you and I talked about two segments ago tonight, because a lot of these defendants or future defendants in the congressional criminal contempt case, like Bannon, soon to be Meadows, Clark, Eastman, a lot of them have said, let's see what happens with the civil case on the Gen 6 National Archive thing and how executive privilege plays out there. And, uh, you know, I shouldn't be... Um, forced to testify until that gets played out. Well, that's getting pretty played out given Friday's ruling against Trump where executive privilege has been improperly asserted. So, you know, this this thing they've been standing on, this house of cards they've been standing on, like, just let's just wait, let's just delay, let's see what happens in that appeal and this appeal. All these things are going terribly wrong for them. So as you mentioned, Meadows, probably waived his privilege throughout his memoirs that he published last Tuesday. He's probably waived aspects of the privilege related to the production of documents that he's already done. And you can't, the courts are pretty clear. You can't have, you can't use a privilege as a sword and a shield. You can't waive part of it and give the ones that you think are beneficial to you or don't show anything and hold back the ones that the Gen 6 committee really wants to get its hands on by claiming privilege. Can't do that either. So now he's running out of exit ramps. And so the last one is let's try to go to a court and try to hope we get a Federalist Society judge to make a ruling here. So they file, but they have to file in the D.C. Circuit because that's where everything everything here resides. They can't run out to Texas or the Fifth Circuit or the Eleventh Circuit. They got to file in D.C. Circuit. Now, I haven't seen, Ben, have you? And I looked right before we started podcasting tonight. I haven't seen which judge has been assigned to the case. Have you? I've not seen. Which I'm not sure it's been announced yet. It may be Monday or Tuesday, and then we'll tweet about it and talk about it next week. But whoever is assigned to it, the lawsuit, which says um, I should not be subjected to the Congressional Committee's investigation, A, because they're they're way outside their boundaries of their authority. That's not going to that's not going to happen. That's not going to work. And secondly, I have legitimate uh issues related to the exercise of executive privilege. And if I'm made to testify or um, then, uh, you know, I'm being put through a, a, a kangaroo court for no reason. But that's not what Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney has told him. What, what he's told, what they've told the lawyer is come in, testify. And if you have a proper application of the executive privilege, make it on the record and we'll assess it at that time. But we, you, you don't get the right to do a blanket uh, assertion of the privilege without, and just say, I'm not coming in because I used to be the chief of staff. That That's not the way that works. So he'll, he'll probably lose. We'll see which judge he gets at the court of a, at the uh, DC circuit court trial level. And then it'll be just exactly what we've already mapped out with all the other cases. It'll be some sort of appeal to the appellate uh, circuit of the DC court. And then if he doesn't like that ruling, uh, another emergency application of Justice Chief Justice Roberts. So we know it. We've seen this movie before. 
But but again, it's the time interval that you're talking about that's so important because this will push out, you know, all of these issues well, potentially well beyond the um, the um, midterm elections, because, you know, Bannon's trial is now going to be in July. So and look how long it took us to get to that point. They haven't even voted on contempt yet. Congress hasn't against um, Meadows, but that's that's coming. And then a criminal referral so that he's trying to muddy the waters for the Department of Justice when they get the criminal referral from the House. And he's got this lawsuit out there. You know, he, he thinks that he may brush them back from the plate and they may give pause and not decide to criminally prosecute, waiting for the results of the court. And he may be right. We have to really what you and I have to watch really carefully so that we can explain it to our listeners about the next steps. But he's done a lot of weird things leading up to the lawsuit. If he was going to file the lawsuit, he should have done it three months ago and not produced anything and certainly not talked about Jan 6 in his memoirs. You know, it's one of the extra kind of dastardly things about this Trump administration is this additional trauma of now trying to gaslight the nation and extend deadlines and just totally destroy all democratic institutions post the insurrection. I mean, all of this conduct that they're engaged in with these bogus's assertion of executive uh, privilege over a Jan 6th insurrection and then trying to delay it to erode our democratic norms is truly something that's unforgivable. The other option that Mark Meadows can avail himself to as well is he could invoke the Fifth Amendment. Um, And if you want to think through, he could show up, invoke the Fifth, not answer any questions and then just leave. But even if you invoke the Fifth, you know, at a criminal proceeding, you don't get to say, I'm not even going to show up to court. (laughs) That's essentially what Mark Meadows lawsuit is saying. Um, he's first off, he's trying to convert a qualified privilege, not an absolute privilege, a qualified privilege that is the executive privilege, which is supposed to be about deliberations within the executive branch to try to protect those solemn conversations between a president and another person in it that he works for him for national security reasons. So that's like the whole purpose behind the executive privilege to begin with. He wants to basically convert that into the Fifth Amendment, which is I don't even have to answer any questions, um, you know, to, to against my right against self-incrimination. So I'm which is. Not that's not what the executive privilege is. But even if it was like the Fifth Amendment, you think about it, everybody listening, the criminal doesn't get to show up and say, hey, I'm not going into court right now. I'm going to plead the fifth. You're making me show up to invoke the fifth. I'm not even going to do that. You're harassing me. I'm going to file a lawsuit against you and I'm going to file a lawsuit. that says I don't even need to show up in your proceeding to invoke the fifth. That's how absurd this lawsuit is, you know, trying to put it in, into those yeah. terms. And, and it's different just to make give clarity to our listeners. It's different than when a, a criminal defendant asserts his Fifth Amendment right not to take the stand and testify in his own defense. That's different. This is first of all, this is a right now. This is a civil proceeding being conducted by the House. It, the only criminal component of it is a criminal contempt if you don't testify in the civil proceeding of the House. So the House, you know, if you're in a situation where you're in a civil proceeding, yes, you can assert the Fifth Amendment, 
but it has two, there's two qualifications to that. One, as you mentioned, Ben, you got to do it question by question, and it can be challenged. You can actually go to a judge and say, look, there's a series of questions here for which this witness has asserted the Fifth Amendment privilege. And the judge can say, no, it's not likely you're going to be prosecuted or, or you don't have a reasonable likelihood you'll be getting prosecuted for a crime or other factors that go into Fifth Amendment analysis. And then the judge may order you answer the question because it's an improper assertion of the Fifth Amendment. That's one thing. The second thing is in a civil case, and we've talked about this once before, there is a, a adverse inference that can be assigned in a civil context if you take the Fifth Amendment. So you can go to a civil case. O.J. Simpson can go to a civil case where he got sued and, and refused to testify every question that's asked of him. Did you kill your wife? Did you hide the knife? Did you hide evidence? Did you try to witness tamper? And he can assert the Fifth Amendment. I, I assert my Fifth Amendment right not to answer in the, on the grounds that may incriminate me. But the jury can take an adverse inference and almost here, guilty, 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 guilty every time that question is answered. So Fifth Amendment application in the civil context is different than in the criminal context where there can never be an adverse finding against the person asserting the Fifth Amendment. So we've got that going on within this civil proceeding of the House. Absolutely. And then finally, Popak, I want to talk about uh, the Supreme Court's finally ruled on the Texas bounty hunter law, um, SB8. There were two lawsuits against this SB8 law that uh, were ruled on in the district court, then subsequently ruled on in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then taken up by the United States Supreme Court. One uh, case was brought by clinics that assist in the performance of abortions. The other case was brought by the United States Department of Justice um, against the state for enacting that law. And that was against the clerks and judges seeking an injunction to stop um, SB8. So basically what the Supreme Court said, and it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird ruling. It basically says that we will allow because it was never an issue about whether the SB8 would be struck down or not. That was really not what was at stake. I guess the question was, could their SB8 be challenged and could SB8 be implemented in the way it was? You know, basically what the Supreme Court held is that SB8 um, will remain in effect. SB8 is not going to be abolished, but it can be challenged but it can be challenged in limited ways, not the way the federal government was seeking an injunction on it, um, but it can be challenged on, you know, through lawsuits against licensing agencies um, that could potentially revoke the licenses of doctors who are performing abortions, but that you can't go after the clerks you can't go after Texas judges. You can't go after really anybody else in Texas. Um, so, I, I mean, what does it mean? It's a bit confusing, Popak, but I think at the end of it means is it means that SB8 remains in effect um, in Texas. So that horrible abortion law remains. No one is the, the federal government is not able to basically stop that law from going into effect. But to me, Popak, it's a very sinister ruling in a way because it kind of shifts the burden on once a woman or doctor or somebody is sued 
under the SB8 scheme, once they're targeted by SB8, like they're able to challenge the law, but they have to kind of go through the ordeal to challenge that law within the federal system. Um, and, and mind you, this is while you have the Dobbs case that we talked about last week that's seeking to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so to me, what the Supreme Court was really doing here is basically saying, we'll let you challenge SB8 in a, in a reactive way. We'll allow SB8 to have its chilling effect to basically prohibit all abortions after six weeks in the, in the state of Texas. We'll allow you to challenge it. Good luck. That'll take several years. In the meantime, we're working on Dobbs, um, that's going to probably overturn Roe v. Wade, which is probably going to make the SB8 law moot anyway. That's how I see what they really did here. But you could break it down a little better. OK, I looked I, I don't disagree with your analysis, but let me make it a little little more molecular because it, it has baked within it in the decision. You have Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts versus uh, Gorsuch. Those are the exact two justices you and I talked about during SB8 and during Dobbs versus Mississippi that we said would be the key to whether the pre-viability right to a constitutional right to an abortion is going to survive or not. Chief Justice Roberts in this decision from yesterday or the day before yesterday, in his dissent, in his partial dissent, that was joined by the left wing or the Democratic wing of the Supreme Court, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, so four votes on a partial dissent, said without reservation that the Texas law violates the constitutional right to an abortion established by this court, by the Supreme Court, and did it in a way improperly to do an end run around the ability of the Supreme Court to exercise its primacy in the area of constitutional interpretation, citing, as, as our listeners and followers know well, from me and you, Marbury versus Madison from 1807, which is the case that established the role of the Supreme Court once and for all as the, as the body of the three branches that declares and says what the law of the country and the nation is. He didn't mince words. He wrote it plain and clear. He got three other people to join him. And that was throwing down the gauntlet in advance of the decision in Mississippi, the Dobbs case, and his effort to try to get one more vote over to preserve the constitutional right to an abortion. He failed yesterday. He failed to get that fifth vote that he needed to tear down the Texas case, uh, the Texas ban of six weeks now, while they while we wait for the summer decision in Dobbs versus Mississippi on the fundamentals. He was unsuccessful in his in his attempt, and it was a real attempt in a sharply worded dissent, which I'll post, to try to get, I presume, Gorsuch over to his side. Instead, Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, which basically said, this is a procedural issue only. 
We are not going to rule on the merits of the SBA six-week ban on abortion. We're not going to sully ourselves at this moment while we're deciding Mississippi's case for the summer on the merits. So we're okay. There's at least six people, no, sorry, without Roberts, five people on the uh, majority on the U.S. Supreme Court that thinks it's okay that there won't be one abortion in the state of Texas between now and next summer, even if even if they ultimately find, because Roberts is able to get Gorsuch over or somebody over, that there is a, a some sort of constitutional pre-viability right to abortion left. If there is that left, what have they done in this dastardly way that you've identified? They... For, for, for thousands and thousands of Texas women, this won't matter because they will have had the baby already. That's how many months out this is. And they don't care. This is the callousness that Roberts pointed out in his dissent when he said, this is an institution that is supposed to declare what the law of the land is under the US constitution. And we are abdicating our responsibility to do that. And oh, by the way, the law of the land is Roe v. Wade and Casey. And are we gonna let the states do an end run around us and ignore us as the sitting body of the co-equal branch of government, yes or no. And right now, five people on that on that Supreme Court are like, yeah, we don't really think it's that big of a deal. My biggest issue with this and reading the tea leaves is Roberts, as we've said time and time again in the last 37 weeks, has lost the control of the court. He is basically a chief justice in name only. He is not shaping result in the important social issues that matter. And he is losing his hold as that tug of war, that that um, that piece of cloth in the middle of the tug of war gets pulled and yanked over to the supermajority side on issues of importance. Now, I want to ask you something. I saw in Slate magazine, I thought it was a very good uh, hypothetical that if Roberts wants to preserve his legacy, because up until this moment, like his legacy, one of his legacy was, and I think he was proud of it, was having Obamacare survive twice. If this goes awry in the summer, he will forevermore be the chief justice that let a constitutional right go out the door the first time in 150 years. If he doesn't want that to happen, there is a strategy. He is 66 years old. He could resign right now and let uh, Biden appoint the new chief justice and swing it back in terms of the amount of people on that panel that are in his favor. Does Roberts do that? What do you think? Absolutely not. Roberts is, <laughs> is not going to. Well, that was he's, easy. He, he's absolutely not going to do it. Um, you know, he's been on the bench since he was appointed by George W. Bush. It's a big deal to be the chief justice. His view of the institution um, you know, is going to be that through, uh, you know, over time, he could be able to fix it, that it could be a dark moment in the history of the court, but that, you know, we'll see what happens with, um, you know, future uh, elections and what the composition of the court ultimately, we ultimately, ultimately will be. And, you know, I think that he'll have a very strong dissent to preserve his view and where he stands when I think there will be a ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. And then I think there are going to be people who take to the streets. I think there are going to be people who are going to mass protest when that happens, you know, in June or July or when that order hits. And, you know, history is not going to be kind 
to this 30-year plan by the GQP and the Federalist Society to attack women, to attack childbearing persons, to attack the separation of church and state, to attack our democratic norms. It's incredibly sinister and people don't realize it, but when that ruling hits, it's going to people are going to wake up and people are starting to wake up and i'm happy to be able to do this podcast with you popak every weekend to help people wake up learn the law be empowered and to teach others about uh these legal cases that we're talking about want to wish everybody a great weekend i'm ben micellis always a pleasure being joined by michael popak if it's saturday It is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts in making Legal AF one of the top legal podcasts in the country. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.